know, I've been around a long time. I know how hard this is. From the political science department at UW-Madison. Am I exasperated? Absolutely, I'm exasperated. I'm Adam Wigger. This country's gone through tough times before, and we're going to do it again. And I'm Sam Beisman. This is more work than in my previous life. I thought it would be easier. And this is 1050 Basketball. Today on 1050 Bascom, we are grateful for the opportunity to interview Professor Scott Mobley, Associate Director of the Center for Liberal Democracy, to talk about his research and teaching interests in U.S. foreign policy, international security, and civil-military relations. Professor Mobley, a retired naval officer, graduated from the U.S. Naval Academy and holds an M.A. in National Security Affairs from the Naval Postgraduate School. Before joining the Center for Liberal Democracy, Professor Mobley taught at the Naval Academy. He also has an MA and PhD in history from the University of Wisconsin-Madison and is the author of the book Progressives in Navy Blue, Maritime Strategy, American Empire, and the Transformation of U.S. Naval Identity, 1873 to 1898. We talked to Professor Mobley about his perspective on studying the military as a former Marine officer, the current and historical state of the civil-military paradox, and contemporary national security challenges facing the United States. First things first, thank you so much for being with us today on 1050 Bascom, Professor Mobley. I'm delighted to be here, and uh, you know, it's a, it's a nice spring day here in Madison, and it's Friday, and this is a great way to end up the week. Yeah, indeed. A nice spring day as opposed to those kind of really dreary overcast ones we've had for the past couple, so I, I agree. True. Yeah. So since this is your first time on the podcast, we'd like to start by just asking a little bit about you and your background and research interests. You're our first guest, actually, who has a distinguished academic teaching and research career that began in one of the major military branches. And we're seeing as well a num- an increasing number of political science majors who are also interested in military service. So we're especially curious as to what set you on the pathway towards a BS and an MA at the Naval Academy. Was that something you've been thinking about when you were in high school? And in general, what shaped your academic and intellectual interests that led to your undergraduate years at the Naval Academy and then your career? Sure. Well, full disclosure, I grew up in a Navy family. My dad was a, a Naval officer. We moved around a lot. We moved 13 times when I was a kid. So I was used to the, that lifestyle and it was not a mystery to me. And I really admired my dad. I still do. And I just decided when I was like six years old, I wanted to follow in his footsteps. So I was one of those people that I had my eyes set on the Naval Academy since I was, ever since I can remember. And that was my, kind of my sole focus growing up. So when I was able to secure an appointment and go there, it was like I'd landed on the moon. It was just, I remember that day, I was just so thrilled. And he was also a Naval Academy graduate, although he started out differently than I did. He was a, he enlisted in the Navy when he was 19. And then he worked his way up through the ranks, whereas I went in right out of high school. And the Naval Academy is is purely an undergraduate program. So that's where I got my bachelor's degree. And then the master's, my first master's, I I got at an institution uh, known as the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California. That's the Navy's graduate school. So undergraduate is at the Naval Academy in Annapolis, and then graduate is later in your career, mid-career, at the Naval Postgraduate School. 
Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about what getting a degree and a master's at those institutions kind of entails, especially the differences between what a political science student here at Madison gets in their undergraduate? Sure. I would say there's a lot of, well, particularly we'll start with the undergraduate. There's a lot of similarity between what I experienced at the Naval Academy on the academic side and what the academics I've seen at UW. The main difference is the Naval Academy is a military institution. And so there's that military stuff that kind of overlays the academic and you can never escape that. Consequently, the students there are very, very busy. There's never a moment in their lives when they're not doing something that's required by the program, which is why like for meals and stuff, their meals are served to them. They go to a, a dining hall for your laundry. You put it in a bag and throw it out in the hallway and they come by the dorms and pick it up and bring it back. It's all uh, ironed and folded or in, on hangers and stuff. And so they don't have to worry about working to put their way through through school. So they're not trying to juggle work and school like so many students at UW-Madison are. But on the other hand, they really have no life outside the academy, particularly as a freshman. It's a little bit better as in the upper classes, but freshman year, it's, it's you might as well just, you could be on the moon as far as uh, interaction with the outside world. Well, they do have a majors program, just like at Madison. And I was a history major and I, I chose that because I decided, you know, I always, I always had a passion for history and I decided to pick a major that I would enjoy because there was so much else at the academy that I won't say that you don't enjoy, but let's just say you might not enjoy. So I did that. But one thing that makes the, the Naval Academy stand apart, say from UW Madison, is it's essentially everyone double majors. You, you have the major that you choose, and it could be poli-sci, they have poli-sci history, English and humanities, and a few other humanities majors, and there's a lot of STEM majors. But everybody, so everybody has their major, and then you've got basically a, a double major as an engineer. So everyone comes out of there with a lot of STEM classes under their belt. About a third of your degree is STEM, a third is your major, and another third is Navy professional courses like leadership and navigation and uh, weapons and, and things like you would expect for a military academy. So that's a little bit different. The Typically, a Naval Academy graduate will finish up with 140 to 150 credit hours, whereas at Madison, it, it's more like 120 or up. I've seen people with more, particularly depends on your major. Essentially, the Naval Academy program is a five-year program crammed into four years. So it's pretty intense. So and that intensity is a little bit different than, well, it's a different kind of intensity than you would experience at a school like UW Madison or a civilian college. But it, you know, it's still pretty hard. I mean, both schools are, are top-notch, high standards. And if you're going to succeed, you got to work. You can't party and make it through UW-Madison despite some of the um, the legends, the myth, the mythos. So then thinking about your experience then at the Naval Academy, how did that propel you towards your decision to eventually decide to get a post-grad degree and eventually become a professor? Oh, okay. That's a great question. And my first post-grad degree, as I mentioned before, was at the Naval Postgraduate School. And I... I Picked that degree up about 10 years after I graduated from the Naval Academy. I was mid-career naval officer. And I majored in uh, national security affairs, which is basically international relations. It's like an IR specialization in our department with a national security kind of tilt to it. 
very similar courses. It was a what they call a professional degree. It was designed to prepare you to practice national security out in the real world as compared to an academic degree, which we see in many departments at UW, they're preparing you to become a college professor. So it's a little bit different focus, although a lot of the, the content in the curriculum is basically identical. And I, I had the opportunity to go to postgraduate school and I picked national security because it was the closest thing to history that the Navy had at the time. They now have pro graduate programs in history that officers can, can uh, enroll in, but they didn't back when I went through in the 80s. So this was the closest thing because I, I majored in history and as an undergrad, I continued to nurture that interest out in, in my Navy career, kind of on my own. And so when I had an opportunity to get a, a graduate degree, that's what I picked. And yeah, there's a theme here. You asked me, how did I go to the PhD? Well, my, his, my PhD is in history from UW-Madison here. So that I discovered is, you know, I went through my 30s and 40s into my 50s that I still really liked history. So uh, it, it seemed kind of a natural outcome to gravitate to the history department at this school. And that's pretty much why I went into that program uh, after I finished my Navy career. And speaking of which, you know, there's a, a lot of students here who are in the military, either right now in the reserves or the National Guard, and many others who are considering service after they graduate. So what advice would you have to students and early career alumni who are considering military service post-grad? Well, the first piece of advice is get good grades. Use your time wisely when you're here at the university. You're here to get education. So do the work, get the education. It's competitive. The Basically, recruiting is very competitive. And uh, if higher, having higher grades and a record of performance, it's a bit higher, uh, can be a real advantage. So second piece of advice would be to seek information early. Don't wait till like the spring of your senior year to find out more about the military and what the options are. There's there's recruiters right here in um, in Madison you could visit. I know they have uh, various programs within the armed forces have recruiters that come to campus from time to time. They usually work out of the ROTC offices. They're usually looking for sp specific people. Like I know the nuclear propulsion program in, in the Navy is looking for engineers with certain skill sets. And they we have people like that in the undergraduate programs here at Madison. So they, they come by every year and there's always a few people that get recruited into that. But getting that information is really important. So you know, have an idea of what you're getting into and also figuring out where your interests will lie because in, in your career choice, you really wanna follow your passion as much as you can. Um, you'll just be much happier if you do that. You won't be happy if you're doing something that you don't like. So I would encourage that. And the other thing is explore all the services. Don't just stick to the Navy or the Army or the Air, see what they all have to, op have to offer. There's, there are dozens and dozens of programs and specializations available. So you really wanna make an informed decision. And, and the only way you can do that is looking at all the services. Oh, and the other thing is for freshmen and sophomores that are still here at UW-Madison, you could look at the ROTC units. You can join those units. Each one has a different set of rules, but it's the kind of thing that if you really think you want to do this, you can join the unit basically as a walk-in and uh, you spend some time seeing if it really is for you. And if it is for you, then there's opportunities for scholarships that you can apply for. And, and uh, so it'll have some a financial advantage for you as well. One thing I, I should have said before is that my degrees at the Naval Academy and, and at the postgraduate school are essentially full rides. 
I didn't pay a cent for those. And, and with ROTC, there's substantial, it's not a full ride here at this school, but it, it's, it's very substantial, the support they provide. And of course, the, downs, the other side of that is that they pay for your schooling, but you have a service commitment afterwards. Usually it's about five years that you have to serve in the armed forces after that. But uh, if, you're, if, that service, if you're okay with the service commitment and your grades are decent, then go for it. That is definitely excellent advice for students who are looking to go down that path. Perhaps you could dive a little bit more into your decision to come to UW for another master's and then eventually a PhD program here that eventually also led to your teaching career here. Right. Full disclosure, I didn't come here with getting the, the idea. I didn't come to UW-Madison originally with the idea of getting a master's or a PhD uh, in history. Basically, I was still active doing the Navy, and the assignments officer said, gave me some choices of what I could do. And there were several naval ROTC units in the list of choices. So we looked at the different options, and we decided that Wisconsin would be a good fit for a number of reasons. And so I said, I'll take Wisconsin. They said, okay, you got it. And then I, I came out here, and I spent about two and a half years, almost three years, uh, running. I was in command of the Navy ROTC unit over there, over by Camp Randall. And so that got me to campus. And then the history part, as I was looking towards my next career and uh, thinking about what I wanted to do, I, I decided I didn't want to follow in the footsteps of many of my contemporaries and go into uh, what we call corporate. Didn't want to go into the business world, just had no interest in that. And along the way, I befriended some members of the faculty in the history and poli-sci departments. And just as colleagues, and they were aware of my interest. And I can remember one, one afternoon, we're sitting at a table out there on the terrace. And they you know, said, what are you going to do next, Scott? And I said, I don't know. I really, if you could do anything, what would you do? And I said, well, I'd get a PhD in history. He says, why not do that? So it was pretty good that the people from the department that I would apply to were encouraging me to apply. So I did. And they, they picked me up. You know, you know, it's not a sure thing. And but I, they selected me and then I jumped into the PhD program here and I had to get a, since my national security degree, my IR degree wasn't enough history in it, they decided I needed to get another master. So I did that and then went on to get the PhD. So that's the story. It all happened at the terrace. They, like so many good stories started right. at a terrace table. Right. Um, but to kind of, I guess, turn to the next chapter of that story in a way, you are now the associate director of the Center for Liberal Democracy here at the UW. So for maybe some of our listeners who might not be familiar with what that is, could you just kind of tell us about the center and its courses and maybe what some of its goals are? Right. Well, I, I think the good place to start would be the, the center's mission. The, well, the center is history, too. The history and mission. Professor Don Downs, who's now retired, established the center around 2006, I think it was. So it's been it's about 15 years old at this point. He established it primarily. There, well, there's two missions. One, was, one is to advance the study of the principles, practices, and institutions to uh, underlay liberal democracy. And, and so by doing so, what we hope to do is promote a critical understanding and an appreciation for these principles and practices. And, and we're talking about things like political freedom, free markets. My one near and dear to my heart is balancing liberty, privacy, and security. It's kind of my bailiwick and that sort of thing. Competing at ideologies, ideologies that compete with liberal democracy, things like that. 
So that's the first mission. The second mission is to advance intellectual diversity here on campus, primarily here on campus. And by, we do that by encouraging civil discourse that gives voice to a wide range of views. And uh, First Amendment is kind of a cornerstone of, of, it's one of our initiatives. So you can kind of extrapolate from that. We're, we're trying to create avenues that, that people on different sides of the political and social spectrum would have an opportunity to, to say what they want to say on campus. And that's not always possible due to various reasons. And, and so if you're a student group, say, and you're having trouble getting a sponsor to bring in a guest speaker, we'll come in and do that for you as as a First Amendment practice. So, and to that end, we've got, our programming is framed by five initiatives. And uh, the first is the First Amendment. That's That was the, the original purpose, the original initiative of the center. But we've expanded, particularly the last few years, we have an initiative in civic and economic literacy, a new one, a brand new one in Catholic social and political thought, courts in the constitution. And my uh, special delight is the civil military initiative. If you go to our website, there's a page that outlines all that. So the, our programming, our courses, our activities are all framed by these, these five initiatives. They relate to one or more. We also have a program of postdoc fellows. We have two postdocs right now. We have a whole covey of graduate fellows, I think five this year. And we're launching a, a new program right now and in, into the fall for undergraduate fellowships. And uh, so that'll be more on that soon. Tune into the, uh, what is it? The, 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 isn't there an undergraduate network or, or board, bulletin board or something? that the department has, you'll, you'll be seeing more about that soon. It's a good deal. There, there are little, there are scholarships that go with that for just participating in the life of the center. And you would connect to one of those initiatives. Yeah. So that's in a nutshell, that's what the center is and what we do and what the programming does. Yeah. Um, I know Sam and I have both taken classes taught by postdocs in the center. So definitely very interesting stuff going on in the center. And I'm really excited to focus on this class or to start now. Sure. Uh, this class that you're teaching right now called Defending Democracy, the Theory and Practices of U.S. National Security in a Complex World. Can you give us like the first day of class kind of overview or the pitch uh, that you like to give for this class? Sure. Well, the, basically, the class is exactly what it says. It's the theory and practice of U.S. national security. We focus on the theory, the conceptual institutional frameworks, and the constitutional underpinnings of national security. And then we spend a lot of time on contemporary policy issues. Some of these are domestic, which have to do the they have to do with the the different dynamics behind national security policy and strategy and budget. And then. We spend about a third of the course looking at global challenges. So it's in some, the course is divided into three units. The first one I call foundations and fundamentals. And that covers the fundamental concept and language of national security. It, just like any other area, it's got its own language and, and jargon. So we, we talk about that. We talk about national and international security theories. And we talk about the history of U.S. national security. And then the second unit I call players, process, and practices. And this looks at really how the institutions that we talked about in the first unit, how they translate the theory and the framework into action, into decisions, into policies and strategies and boots on the ground at times, if that's needed. And then the last part I call the world of challenges. And we're just starting that like 
on next Tuesday, and that looks at how the U.S. exercises national security policy and strategy in the real world in a number of different domains. It's it's on the planet Earth. It's in space. It's uh, you know geopolitics. It's cyber. Climate change has now become a national security concern. So we look at that. So all types of of there's actually more issues and areas of interest than there are class sessions. So I let the class basically vote on what they want to cover the last couple of weeks because. I just can't cover everything. Yeah, absolutely. Kind of on that, you know, the last year of news has been dominated by COVID and not national security, like so much of the last of, you know, this century has been so far. And it's a really broad question. But what are some of like the really major national security issues that the United States is facing like today? Sure. Well, I think the most immediate is the health of the current force. And we've got, what, 1.3 million men and women that are serving on act, in active duty in the armed forces. And then we've got a large reserve force. I think it's almost a million, pushing a million. So they need to be healthy to do their jobs, just like to do any job, you've got to be healthy. It's just that their jobs involve national security. So in as much as COVID can, people get sick, crews of ships, platoons and, and companies of soldiers, can't carry out their current mission if they're down with COVID. Fortunately, there are, it's an age group where most people recover, but it just, if you have to constantly worry about people being sick, you can't do your job and the national security mechanisms can't function properly. So you don't have the normal ability to respond to crises, to carry out missions and stuff like that. So that's the first impact. A second one is an emerging need to incorporate pandemic mitigation into strategic planning. We can't assume going forward that this is a one-off. Is this a once-in-a-century pandemic, or is, is it going to happen more frequently? And there's some people who are studying this think that we're going to see waves of pandemic more frequently going forward for a number of regions. So if you're in the armed forces and you're trying to plan out this, the national security, you got to take that into account. You got to assume you're going to have to you're got to deal with the attrition on your on your people, the wear and tear on your equipment that would be caused by COVID or something like that going forward. And then the last and probably the most profound is the impact on the economy. And that's what we all feel, but the military feels it too. And when the economy slows down on a very basic level, economy slows down, tax revenues go down. Part of those tax revenues go to the armed forces and that's how they function. So we're already looking for this upcoming fiscal year, fiscal year 22, the, the armed forces are looking at budget cuts for a number of reasons, but COVID contributes to that. So with less money, there's less capacity and less capability. And uh, even if you trim all the fat, you're still going to probably not have enough to, to meet the mission. So that economic impact pervades everything, all aspects of American life, including our national security. Yeah. One more follow-up question I have still on this class that you teach. You mentioned that you discussed the theories of national security. And I, I were wondering here, you know, based on your previous experience at the Naval Academy and at other military institutions, and then coming to like a civilian institution like UW, how kinds of those theories and practices differ at all between the two worlds? Well, I think the research and the scholarship that develops these theories, it's the same. It's the same thought that both the civilian and military schools draw on. And like at the Naval Academy, for example, the majority of the faculty there are actually civilian professors. And they compete. There's a hiring process almost identical to what we have here at UW-Madison, where they bring in new professors and there's a tenure process and all that. And so 
the scholarship that informs the teaching is it's the same body of knowledge and the body of understanding. So that's no different. The teaching methods are, are the same. The way that my teaching style here is pretty much the same as it was there at the Naval Academy. And we're encouraged to do that. And even the military professors are encouraged to do that. It's an interesting dynamic. That part isn't that much different. Now, when you're talking about theory and practice, like the theory and practice of national security, how that plays out in the real world, the theory versus the practice, there's a dynamic there that kind of transcends academia. I mean, that's more in the realm of decision makers and the people who carry out the actions of the decision makers. Theory is a good starting point, we can say, but most theories don't fully capture the nuance and contingency of human interactions and human actions and interactions and relationships. So that's when you get into some interesting situations where what you learn in school doesn't seem to be applying here. And that's where, where good judgment has to come in. And you use theory as a tool, but it's not the, it, basically theory gives you the questions to ask, but it won't give you the answers. Because the answers, you know, it's not a black and white world and answers aren't right and wrong. It's a very gray world. So if the theory can help you ask good questions, that's really the key there. From there, I want to shift gears a little bit and ask you some questions based on another one of your courses that you teach called the Civil Military Paradox in U.S. Politics and Society. And the civil military paradox is an issue in political science that has fascinated me during my time at UW. So just kind of to, to step back a little bit and just lay some common ground, what is the civil military paradox? Well, the civil military paradox that I talk about in the course is basically a balancing act. And it's a balancing act between, just in shorthand, we're talking about liberty, prosperity, and security. And they don't always go together. Security, which is often the, it's the, it's the purview of the armed forces. There are other instruments too that help with security, but the military instrument in particular, going way back to the, the framers of the constitution and the, the founding of the nation, there was a strong mistrust of the military for good reason, because it's a concentration of power, which if left unchecked, can destroy the democratic process. It can destroy personal freedoms. In, in human rights very easily. So the United States and other democracies and all nations need to have their own armed forces to provide that degree of security from external attack. But in doing so, there's a risk that that institution, the armed forces, could turn on the government, turn on the democratic process. So, and, and the armed forces are very expensive and they undermine prosperity. So this balancing act, this dilemma, this paradox is that we don't really want these the armed forces but we need them. And if we have them, they can destroy us. They can at least destroy our, our politics and have a, a serious impact on our, our economy and social system as well. Then to move on from there into some of the implications of this paradox, how has the United States tried to kind of strike this balance between having a military that is capable of protecting its citizenry and also maintaining the freedoms and liberties that are essential to democracy? Well, that's a great question. That's really the heart of the course. In essence, civil military relations are the way we balance these three priorities, liberty, security, and prosperity. On the political side, there's a couple of different controls that are in place. Fundamentally, there's the Constitution. The Constitution is confusing and convoluted when it comes to this particular issue. In both my national security class and my civil military class, 
We spend a day with the constitution where we break up into groups and we try to find all the provisions that have anything to do with national security or civil military, depending on the class. And it's like a jigsaw. So we pull it apart and then we put it all back together again. And usually by the end, the class is just astonished when I say things like, well, basically the constitution is a national security document. And they don't understand that at first, but by the end they do. And I've had a number of people in the in the course eval say that was the most memorable day of the course when they see the what the framers did to try to manage this this relationship between the civil side and the military side. So the constitution is really important. And emanating from that is a certain process of acculturation that's developed over the last few hundred years. We really instill into the psyche of the people who serve in the armed forces the idea that they are serving to support and defend the constitution. And that's been very successful. And we saw some recent indications of that. Some of the civil military uh, issues that emerged with some of the urban unrest last summer. And then again, with the post-election ferment and all that, uh, twice the Joint Chiefs of Staff reminded everyone in the armed forces that their obligation to support and defend the Constitution. So to the point where this, this idea of civilian control, and that's really what, it, what I'm getting to here, that these are, these are mechanisms for civilian control. The civilian authority controls the military, and that's very deeply embedded in the U.S. culture. There's been some studies recently and some other anecdotal examples that have come out where that there are certain people questioning that people in uniform and people outside in uniform, but it's still a very strong ethos and it serves as a, a, a vital check to any tendency that might cause the military to act in ways that would harm democratic governance and in, in institutions of our system. To follow up on that and then also draw from your background in history, I'm curious as to how that civil military relationship has changed or maybe like fluctuated over times in the United States. Have there been any particular episodes throughout United States history, be they recent or um, historical, where you feel like there has been a disruption in that relationship? And then what kind of lessons do you think we can learn from that? Well, you know, when it comes to bringing in people with military expertise, usually they're career people, sometimes they're active duty, more often they're retired military officers. There's really a long history of that. It goes way back to the beginning of the Republic. Some people are surprised to learn that 29 of the 46 presidents had military service. So that's like 63%, almost two thirds had served in the military. Now the vast majority were had served in a time of war, generally as junior officers or senior enlisted. So they didn't really have a military mindset. It, they had military experience without the mindset. Three of our presidents have been career military, Zachary Taylor, Ulysses Grant, and, and Dwight Eisenhower. So there's not many of those. And then if you get down to the cabinet level, there's, I mean, there's just so many examples and also the national security advisor position, which is didn't exist before 1947, but at least in formal formal existence. But we've had military retirees and serving military serving in that role. Um, so the Trump administration was not unusual in that regard. It might have been unusual how short they they lasted. That I'd have to study that. I don't know for a fact, but generally speaking, they didn't last for more than maybe in some cases a few months or a year or so. But then again, there was a lot of revolving doors in that particular administration. But there's plenty of precedent for military serving in those types of roles from the president and down into the other political appointed positions, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think one thing is different is our awareness. 
I don't think this was part of it didn't really hit the public consciousness in the past. It is a bit unusual now that with two administrations from either side of the political uh, spectrum have asked for waivers for the Secretary of Defense bringing in a retired general. That's not enough to have a trend yet, but it is something that at least gets my my attention. Uh, and there's a reason that that particular, the, the Secretary of Defense, since the office was founded, there have been restrictions on having military, basically career military people serving in that. I mean, there was never a prohibition, but originally it was a 10-year, you, know, you had to wait 10 years before you were eligible. And then they shortened it to seven years a decade or so ago. But even now we're, we're getting waivers on that. So that's just something we need to pay attention to and, and start asking questions if, it, if we see it continue. That's something that your generation is going to have to handle. I suppose so. That kind of leads me to another question that I want to ask related to this, and that what do you wish the public understood more about the role of the military in American culture and society? Well, what do I wish they would know more? It's exactly what you said. I wish they would understand more what these constitutional arrangements are. When it comes to issues like military people serving in civilian appointed positions within the higher levels of government, what's allowed and what's not, what's normal and what's not. So that's one area where at least if you want to be a member of the informed public, you ought to have that in your civic literacy briefcase, if you will. Uh, Another critical issue that's come to light, especially after last summer, is the role of the armed forces in quelling domestic unrest. And it's pretty clear what the president can do. And there's, and the relationship between the Congress, it's kind of very dynamic, for lack of a better term on that. But there's a lot of also a lot of public misunderstanding when they see sh- troops showing up in Kenosha. Actually, they, those troops were ordered in by the governor of Wisconsin. It's complicated. But in a nutshell, the governors control the National Guard, and they are state military, so to speak, and they're affiliated with the army in a secondary role, and they can be called into federal service by the president. The Congress delegated that authority to him 200 years ago, but a lot of people think it's the president sending troops. Well, no, it's the governor. And so it's those types of issues that we need to understand. And at least we might not like it, but at least we understand it. And and if, you know, if you're going to get upset, get upset for the right reasons, not the wrong reason. So there's another area and kind of even more fundamental between the using military and, and civilian appointed positions and the idea of domestic force. It's just a general understanding of what the military can and cannot do. In the United States, we have a history of a love-hate relationship with the military. We inherently distrust the military, but we also inherently love the military. So we attribute to the military a lot of qualities that really we shouldn't. They are not the answer to all of our problems. These men and women are trained, educated, and experienced in certain specific areas of expertise pertaining to national security. They're not going to have all the answers outside of that relatively narrow specialization. So don't over-rely on them for solving our problem. So and that, that applies at all levels, at the cabinet level and even down to our local communities. We don't want to put the military on a pedestal. We don't want to do that. And, we, and the way we don't do that is with education. Kind of as we're running up on time, I definitely want to ask, thinking now to, you know, some of the current events in this new administration that we haven't talked about yet, what are some of the challenges that the Biden administration is facing right now in their pursuit of national defense? 
Well, there's a lot of challenges, same challenges that the Trump administration faced. Uh, they just were down, farther down the path on some of this. Right now, we're kind of at a historical cusp, potential turning point, where the U.S., since the 1890s, we've been, by most measures, we've been the top, we've been the number one economy in the world. Since World War II, we've been the, uh, the leading military power. And now we're finding that China in particular is is catching up fast and, and most of the forecasts see them surpassing us soon in several of these key measures of national power. So if you're a realist, as opposed to a liberal or a uh, constructivist, you're going to be, you guys are nodding your head. You've taken your your IR theory classes. That's You're going to be really nervous about that. So the reemergence of peer competition, particularly with China, also to a certain extent, Russia, that's an issue that the Biden administration needs to deal with. And it's particularly China, it's really, it's a very nuanced relationship. And arguably, it's not primarily a military relationship that we're talking about. There's, it's, it's economic, it's diplomatic. So we really have to think about those other instruments of national power. Certainly, the Chinese are not trying to play the military hand, despite some of the rhetoric and the press attention. They're playing a long game using all the instruments of power, and they're doing it quite well. So Biden administration needs to deal with that. The other is the states we call rogue states, although they wouldn't call themselves rogue states. And I'm talking about North Korea and Iran. And, and the reason they're on our radar is because they're emerging nuclear powers. And if you think of all the countries that have n- nuclear weapons, most of them, aside from the great powers of the superpowers, China and Russia, are on our side, or at least they're not unfriendly to us. They're either friends or not unfriendly. But now we have the prospect of two openly hostile countries fielding nuclear weapons within, could be within five to 10 years from now. And if that happens, that kind of changes the power dynamic of of the world. So that's a concern. Climate change is a huge concern. You know, there's all, there are people that acknowledge or don't acknowledge climate change. I could tell you the Department of Defense acknowledge it, it, and they're working feverishly to figure out how this is going to affect national security and begin to think about how do we deal with this. So along with climate change is also resource scarcities and the impact they have both on on nations around the world, particularly undeveloped nations are are more vulnerable, but there's also scarcities and resources that we need that uh, as as the resources um, dry up or go away, how do we deal with that? Conflict in the developing world. That's been our focus since 9-11, that we're talking about pivoting to the peer competition, but that isn't going away. And these types of issues related to poverty and corruption and uh, resource scarcity and, and, and other things in the developing world are the nursery for international terrorism, which has hit home very strongly in all of our lifetimes. So we have to figure that piece out. And the things you need to deal with China and Russia from national security perspective aren't necessarily the same things you need to deal with terrorism in developing world conflict. And then finally, there's there's a bunch of, of new domains that are emerging and have emerged, domains for conflict, cyber space, and that sort of thing. And right now, there's uh, a lot of people don't realize this, but there's kind of a, it's not really an arms race. It's a tech race, technology race between the, some of the leading powers of the world and things like weaponry, uh, AI, quantum computing, and, and uh, those, all those technologies have huge national security implications. And the U.S., we've enjoyed a, you know, technological dominance for, for generations, and there's a chance we might lose that. So 
That's a short list for the Biden administration. A short list, but a very, very comprehensive one, I think. So thank you for that rundown. And again, as we're kind of starting to come up on time here, we want to ask you, what should we have talked about today? Is there anything that you feel like we haven't asked you about that you feel like our audiences need to hear or anything that you feel like people listening need to hear in general? Yeah, I knew I was going to get this question in advance. And to be honest with you, you guys have really very thoroughly examined me, for lack of a better term. I mean, I, I, I can't think of any other message that I would want to convey to your listeners. The main message is that, you know, many people, here's something, many people aren't interested in national security. They're not interested in civil military relations, and they really need to be. It doesn't have to be the center of their world. But I think as part of the educational, the education you get at schools like UW-Madison, that you ought to spend some time delving into those particular areas of study, you know, and trying to work that into your balance of everything else you need to study to, to move on with your life and career. But this stuff is vitally, I mean, we're seeing issues now playing out that where we as voters and we as citizens need to have our voices heard, and even if it's just going to the ballot box. And and you've got to be informed because there's just too much at stake. You know, our, our very, you know, the existence of our country and our institutions ultimately could be at stake. And certainly, you know, when it comes to civil military relations, the the way we do business in the U.S. needs to be something that we we as a, the public have a role in monitoring and in overseeing in a number of different ways, most particularly the ballot box. So but we actually talked about that. So that's not something we didn't talk about. That's just something I'm emphasizing. Absolutely. The last question we like to ask our guests, you know, it's been a long year for everyone, uh, but now we are entering this new period that we don't know what looks like yet. And we like to ask people what they're hopeful about, about right now. Well, you know, this one, the vaccine is a huge sign of hope. I'm thrilled that we're that particular aspect of the last year or so is going for once we're having something go faster than what we expected. So that's good. So there's there's a lot of hope in our campus that we can get back to something like normal next fall. So that would be nice. You know, and I just hope that we learn from this whole experience. In some ways it's it's divided us, but in other ways it's brought us together. And I can tell you that, you know, you guys, you folk, you people your age are gonna look back on this when you're my age, you're going to say, remember the pandemic of 2020, and you'll be talking about it. And, and we'll be, and I'm hoping that what happens after this will be good news, mostly good news, as opposed to mostly bad news. And we saw this as a turning point, but a turning point for the positive. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Mobley. Sure. It's been a real pleasure. For more information about 1050 Bascom, visit polisci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. 1050 Bascom is edited by Adam Wigger and Sam Beisman, produced by Amy Gangle, and recorded remotely for now.